During his earthly ministry, Jesus gathered 12 disciples and taught them. When Jesus taught, his number one topic was the kingdom of God. And one of his main concerns was for his disciples to live as if the future of God's kingdom had broken into their lives right there and then. And as we saw in the video, God's kingdom is abundant. We've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke, and we've arrived at the point where Jesus, with his disciples, travels from Judea to Jerusalem. And along the way, as they walk, Jesus continues to talk to them about what it means to follow him. He speaks to them about discipleship. We're going to look at some of that teaching this morning on this journey from Judea to Jerusalem, but this time we're going to do it from Mark's perspective. On this journey in Mark's gospel, we see a repeated focus on the first being last and the last being first. And as we'll see, the values of the kingdom of God are very different than the values of the, king of the world. For example, in the first century, children were not highly valued, which is why in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16, we see the disciples trying to stop the children from approaching Jesus. But Jesus welcomed the children and he blessed them, saying, let the little children come to me. Do not stop them. For such as these is the, king the kingdom of God belongs. Right after this, a rich man runs up to Jesus and kneels before him. A man, in contrast to little children, was highly regarded far above women and children. And as a rich and powerful man, he was esteemed even further. The disciples certainly did not try to stop this important man from getting to Jesus. Let's take a closer look at Jesus' response to this man and see what we can learn about God's view of generosity. And let's also see what it is that Jesus wants to teach his disciples and the man himself about living as if the future reality of God's abundant kingdom had already arrived. The story of this rich man is found in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And you can find that on page 822 of the, uh, the, the pew Bibles, the blue Bibles in the back of your pews. Verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have, and give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This man would have been considered first in the culture of Jesus' time. After all, he was rich and he was male. But Jesus does not say the kingdom of God belongs to him, as he had said to the children, but rather he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This man comes with an impeccable moral record. Since he was a boy, he says, he has obeyed all the moral commands. He has not murdered anyone. He has not committed adultery. He has not stolen anything. He hasn't given false testimony. He hasn't defrauded anyone. And he has honored his mother and father. He's set, good to go. But for Jesus, this was not enough. There is one thing that this man lacks. He must go and sell everything and give to the poor, and then come and follow Jesus. This man is being asked to give away his treasure on earth in order to receive treasure in heaven. But verse 22 tells us that when he heard this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He went away. The man turned his back on Jesus and left. Why? If this man had wanted to inherit eternal life so badly, why didn't he just do what Jesus asked? Why was it so hard for him to sell everything and give it to the poor? I think, like many of us, this man was operating out of a scarcity mindset, the kind of mindset that we've just seen described in the video. On Wednesday mornings during the Women's AM Focus, we have been studying Genesis. We have spent many weeks making our way through Genesis 1 through 3, 
And we've spent such a long time because it's important to understand these chapters as they're the introduction to the whole story of the Bible. Together, we've talked about the fact that the Bible is one big story, and that if you were to watch a movie and miss the first 20 minutes, then you would likely understand some of what was going on, but not necessarily why it was happening, since so much of the plot setup takes place at the start. And that's the same with the Bible. The first 11 chapters of the Bible are super important for understanding what is happening in the rest of the story. And Genesis 1 through 3 particularly shows us who God is and who we are. There, we see God in his great generosity and goodness, creating humanity to enjoy and benefit from his good creation. We see that although the abundance and generosity of the garden are evident, humanity does not completely trust in God's goodness. And when they are tempted by the serpent, they begin to wonder if there really is enough for them in the garden. They start wondering if God is actually telling the truth, questioning if God could really be trusted, if it was really good for them to depend on him, if God really would provide for their needs. In short, the humans began to doubt God's goodness and generosity. This is what the video calls the scarcity mindset. It's when we start focusing on what we don't have rather than focusing on what we've been given. When we do this, we begin to justify our behavior. I need to hoard this because I might run out later, or I can't share this with you because what if I end up needing it? That is exactly what Adam and Eve did, and so did all the generations coming after them. This spiraling down of sin and evil all started and then continued because humanity did not believe that God is actually good. And this is what was going on for the rich man in our story this morning. He had stopped believing that God is good. He had taken on the scarcity mindset and had forgotten God's promise of abundance and therefore had, starting hoarding, had started hoarding up wealth for himself to provide for himself. Even though the man had called Jesus good teacher, his response to Jesus made it clear that he didn't actually believe that Jesus really is good. Jesus directs the man's attention to six of the Ten Commandments, the moral commandments. But Jesus left out four. The commandments which speak about honoring God and putting him first in life. We see from this man's response to Jesus that he had put a false God before the one true God. That he had made an idol for himself and perhaps he had also started taking the Lord's name in vain and perhaps had stopped honoring the Sabbath. Jesus knew that the man had stopped loving God because he had started loving money. 
The lies of the serpent in Genesis 3 caused humanity to question God's goodness and love. So once their vision of God was clouded, they were much more susceptible to temptation. This is how idolatry begins. The origin of idolatry comes from a warped vision of God. Did God really say, is God really good? As our vision of the creator gets smaller, our vision of his creation expands to fill that vacuum. And for this man, the vision of riches and wealth had taken the place of God. It seems like this man really wants to inherit eternal life. He rushes up to Jesus and kneels at his feet, but apparently he is not keen enough, not enough to actually part with his wealth. Again, why not? I think that it's because this man's vision of God was not big enough. It had most probably diminished over time. Most likely, this man had stopped keeping those first four commandments because he had found that with all his riches, his life had become comfortable enough and that probably without really realizing it, he'd reached the point where he thought, I don't really need God anymore. He stopped honoring God. And now that his vision of God had disappeared, the appeal of the false God of money had taken over. I'm going to ask for the slide of my dog to be put up. This is my dog. His name is Colby. Colby was a gift from God to our family. An extremely generous grace led to our family adopting Colby. He joined our family fully trained at the age of three, and his love has so blessed our family. In order to finalize this adoption, however, I had to convince and promise my husband that I would look after the dog. I did promise. I promised that I would walk him and that I would feed him and that I would do absolutely everything to take care of him. And while I don't actually do absolutely everything, I do do most of the work. And so, Colby loves me the most. If there is a choice, he will always choose to come and sit with me, or be pet by me, or be walked by me. I have become his master. It's innate for gods to want to submit to a master, and so too, It is for us. Paul Tripp, the author of a book called Redeeming Money, says, Humanity was created to live under mastery, and we all do. The question is, what master? He says, people are hardwired to live for treasure, and that it is the treasure nature of money that makes it particularly hard to resist. We all surrender our hearts to some kind of master. No one escapes. No heart lives free. Everyone's heart is mastered by something. And what masters your heart will shape your thoughts, desires, choices, words, actions, and emotions. 
Matthew 6, 24 says that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Everyone's life is organized around the functional worship of either God or money. The only difference between us is the kind of treasure that we are living to pursue. Jesus clearly understood this and, telling his, and told his disciples in verse 23 how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. There is something about trusting in riches in particular that makes it impossible to enter the kingdom of God. Because Jesus is saying that it is not possible to enter the kingdom if you trust in riches, just as it is not possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And just in case you were thinking that perhaps there might be some kind of loophole here and that Jesus was referring to a gate in Jerusalem through which camels could pass, but only on their knees, the commentaries that I read said that there's no evidence for this gate. It's a gate called the Needle's Eye Gate. Uh, but they didn't discover this gate, into, or it wasn't built, until hundreds of years after the Gospels were written. And so, even on our knees, in humility, we cannot enter the kingdom of God by trusting in our riches. Christian author Sky Jathani says, Money is an alluring false god because it provides the feeling of an illusion of divine power. With money, we can control the world and conform it to our will. It allows us to provide for our needs and desires, to overcome scarcity, and to manipulate those around us. Wealth can isolate us from the challenges that others face, Money can create unique opportunities for those who have it that are unavailable to those without it. In other words, it's a very appealing alternative to trusting God. This is not to say that no one can handle riches. Jathani says that a righteous person will surrender control to God and use wealth as a tool to gain more glory for God. It's not the wealth itself that's the problem. It's the place that it occupies in our lives. And this is why Jesus says to the man, go and sell your possessions. Get rid of everything that keeps you from coming to me and then come follow me. Jesus is essentially saying, I will take the central place in your life and I will satisfy you. It will look like you have become lost in the eyes of the world, but you will actually be first. You will have me, and I am good. I can be trusted to provide for you. 
the disciples are even more amazed by this idea. And in verse 26, they say to each other, who then can be saved? They know that on their own, they cannot master sin. The love of money has its grip on them too. They cannot save themselves from its power over them. Recognizing this is actually the thing that frees them. Being aware of their own inadequacy is all that Jesus needed from them. It's not they who were going to do something for God, but God who would do something within them. What God commands them to do, God enables them to do. Jesus says in verse 27, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Who then can enter the kingdom of God? Who then can be saved? As we heard in the video, only Jesus can defeat the lie that there's not enough. Jesus has made a way through his death and resurrection. Salvation is available to all those who trust in Jesus alone. All those who renounce their idols and choose to follow Jesus. Only those who trust in his abundance, goodness, and care alone can enter the kingdom of God. And Peter's response is one of shock. Wait, we're following you. In fact, we've left everything to follow you. Do we get to receive the kingdom? Thankfully, Jesus' answer is yes. He says in verses 29 to 31, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This story ends with the same topic with which it began, eternal life. The man comes to Jesus wanting to inherit eternal life, but he doesn't get to. However, the disciples do. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that, you may, that they may know you, the Father, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. By giving themselves to Jesus and trusting him with their lives, the disciples get to enter a new family and receive the gift of life. God has made possible what would otherwise have been impossible for the disciples. And he has done the same for us. When we trust Jesus, we are welcomed into the family of God and we receive eternal life. In response, God calls us to continue to trust him to share, and to give. So I have a slide. First, trust. If idols have clouded our vision of God, the solution is more than just removing the idol. If our vision is blurred, we have to come to see God clearly again. 
God must open our eyes by his spirit and give us the sight that we need to see him. We can't make that happen on its own. We need God to intervene. And thankfully, what is impossible for humanity is possible for God. Then we must actively turn our eyes towards Jesus rather than turning away like the rich man. This means getting into scripture on our own and in small groups. We need to allow Jesus to correct our warped vision of God. And we must turn our inner vision towards God as well through prayer. We must spend time in the presence of Jesus. And as we do, Jesus will transform our scarcity mindset, which keeps us locked in fear, and replace it with a vision of abundance, filling us with faith and trust in his goodness and in his ability to provide. It's this kind of trust that makes a person first in the kingdom of God. The rich man seemed like he was first, but Jesus said that he was last. Children and poor widows might seem that they are last, but Jesus puts them first. The values of the kingdom of God are very different than the values of the world. Let's flip a few pages forward and read Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. So that's on page 825. And here Jesus is in front of the temple. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They, have, they all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This poor widow gave all that she had to the temple, and in so doing, she gave her whole self to Jesus, trusting in his goodness and provision. And Jesus commends her for this. The upside-down nature of the kingdom is revealed. For Jesus, the value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. For Jesus, no gift, whether money, time, or talent, is too insignificant to give if it's given to God. Second, share. The video reminded us that one of the most important ways that we can experience the abundance of God's new creation is sharing with others because of our trust that God is a generous host. Sharing is just another way of giving what we have, our time, attention, and resources. And when we trust God for his abundant provision, we are able to open our hearts and our homes to those around us. 
One of the ways that many of us experience homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children is through our experience in small groups. And if you are not a member of a small group through this church, church, I urge you to join one or even to start one. You can pick up a flyer that looks like this from the rotunda and um, just contact me and I can help you find a group near you, that meets near you. When our small groups meet, we gather around Jesus through his word and we bring our requests for one another to Jesus through prayer. We care for each other's needs and we also find creative ways to meet the needs of the community around us. Together, we learn by the Spirit to trust the generosity of God and to believe that there is enough, just like Jesus did. And when we experience persecution, as Jesus tells us we will, we receive the support of our brothers and sisters and the comfort of knowing that we are not alone in our trials. The beauty of, share, of sharing is that we get to both give and to receive. So on the day that I started writing this sermon, I received two emails and one text. The first email was offering me $500. A generous friend had heard about an adventure that one of my children was embarking upon, and he wanted to contribute to the cost of making the experience possible. The text was from my friend and neighbor asking to borrow our car and offering to drive my son, his son, and some of the neighborhood youth to an activity. And the other email was from a friend asking us to donate towards his ministry. Now, I don't usually get that many offers and requests in one day. But for those of us who are growing in community with others, it should become normal to ask for help, to offer help, and to respond to God's nudges to support those around us in need. Whether it's by a kind word or a phone call or babysitting for tired parents or buying groceries for a small group member. Offering our time and resources as gifts. On the day that I finished writing this sermon, we received a gift. Late in the evening, our dog started barking out of control. And so we got out of bed and looked out the window to see our neighbor under the cover of darkness, placing brand new snow shovels on the doorsteps of people up and down our street. God so often meets our needs through the generosity of his people. And finally, give. My husband and I have been shaped over the years by the biblical teaching that the act of giving is itself a gift which shapes our hearts. Giving breaks the power that money has on our lives. Money wants us to hoard and store up, but the act of giving breaks its power. Giving releases us from the grip that money has on us. And it frees us from the temptation to believe that we control our lives. Ian and I have always been encouraged to give enough to be sure that money does not have a hold on us. And then to give more as God enables us. 
And we have only been able to do this because God enabled us. We've found that the more that we allow ourselves to be shaped by the love of God, the more that we've experienced his grace. Our fear of not having enough is stilled in his presence. God has continually reminded us of the truth of Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2, that he is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. And therefore, we have chosen over and over again not to fear, but to trust Jesus for all things. Just as the widow gave all she had to Jesus, so Jesus gave all he had for us, his very life, that we might have life. Jesus made himself last so that we might be first. We have the opportunity now to come to the table and to remember and celebrate this gift, to remember that Jesus laid down his life and to celebrate the good news that in giving his life, we receive life, both now in this present age and in the life to come, it, and in the age to come, eternal life. <laughs>